Amen. If you have your Bible with you, find the book of Esther, chapter 6. Esther, chapter 6. As we were in chapter 5, we, we saw the worm beginning to turn in Esther 5. In Esther 6, um, we see all of Haman's plans beginning to crumble. The tide does turn. Esther 6 is a pivotal chapter. One of the things we're going to see out of Esther 6 is how that God has a way of doing extraordinary things using very ordinary means. <clears throat> Even things like insomnia. Esther 6. We begin reading in verse 1. On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants and ministered, that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. The king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Remember his wife had said, Yeah, build a 75-foot tall gallows and, and hang Mordecai on it. And he said, Good idea. I'm going to go ask the king about that. And so while he's on his way to ask the king about hanging Mordecai on the 75-foot tall gallows, the king is discovering, uh, is remembering what Mordecai had done for him and that he had not been rewarded. Verse 5. And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, To whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself? Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delighteth to honor, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king used to wear, and the horse that the king rides on, and the royal crown which is set upon his head. And let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done, to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Make haste, take the apparel and the horse as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew, that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Then took Haman the, the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. And Mordecai came again to the king's gate 
But Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews before before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him. Thou shalt surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. We'll stop reading there. May God add his blessings to the reading and hearing and the preaching of his word. And I want to preach to you with God's help this morning uh, for a few minutes on when insomnia is a good thing. When insomnia is a good thing. For as long as I can remember, I have dealt with the inability to go to sleep. I'm all right once I get to sleep, but getting to sleep has always been an issue for me. It was almost a nightly thing that I got in trouble for not going to bed when I was told or arguing about going to bed. When I was told, me and Sister Pearl had philosophical differences about when children ought to go to bed. She thought children ought to go to bed when their parents told them to, and I thought children ought to go to bed when they got sleepy. And I never got sleepy when everybody else did. I don't see insomnia as anything good. To me, there's nothing worse tossing and turning in your bed, trying to find that elusive cool spot on the pillow, trying not to move around so much that you wake your husband or your wife up. I, I don't do I won't lay there like that. I get up and go watch TV. Why I'm so educated, well-spoken on the TV. I want. But in this text, we see God using something as annoying and something as common as insomnia. Something as annoying and something as common as somebody having difficulty getting to sleep. God can work through ordinary means to do extraordinary things. And sometimes we see that our own human weaknesses, our own afflictions, our own inabilities, even something like insomnia or can be good things. The king couldn't go to sleep. He's in between banquets. Esther had already had one banquet. She uses that banquet to invite the king to another banquet. And apparently she either fed them crystals or Taco Bell at that first banquet because the king couldn't sleep that night. And it must be nice to be the king because instead of reading, you know how it is, you can't sleep, uh, you, you read, particularly your Bible. You start reading your Bible, the devil comes shut your eyes for you. <laughs> But it's good to be the king because you don't even have to read for yourself. He has somebody else come in and 
and read the minutes for him. Chronicles of the king. And while the chronicles were being read, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, was reminded of something that happened by this time years earlier. And on that night, for Mordecai, for Esther, for all of the Jews in the Persian Empire, insomnia turned out to be a good thing. I want you to look with me in Esther 6 and see three situations. Three situations in which insomnia is a good thing. Insomnia can be a good thing when it results, number one, in a reward. <laughs> when it results in a reward. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, said King Henry in Shakespeare's play, Henry the Fourth. And Xerxes is living that reality in the opening of chapter 6, as verse 1 tells us that on the night of Esther's first banquet, which was the night before the next banquet, the king could not sleep. While the chronicles were being read, a deed that Mordecai had done years earlier was read to the king. And I just want us to take a moment and review what Mordecai had done and what he was about to be rewarded for. And he was about to be rewarded for what was a faithful deed. A faithful deed. Verse 2 of Esther 6 is the, the recapitulation of a story that happened back in chapter 2. Verses 21 through 23. Mordecai had gotten wind of an assassination plot by two chamberlains who apparently were upset with Xerxes because you usually don't want to assassinate people you're not upset with. When Mordecai got wind of it, notice what he didn't do. He didn't say anything like, well, good enough for him. No, he didn't even say, man, that's bad. Somebody's going to try to assassinate the king. I hope, I hope somebody does something about this. No, when Mordecai got wind of what was going on, he took action. He stepped up to the plate. He decided to get involved. He decided to interject himself into the situation. He did what he was supposed to do, and he notified somebody as to what was going on. He did work at the king's gate, after all. He must have been some sort of keeper, some sort of guard, and he just did what was right. Anyway, an investigation followed, and the two chamberlains who were named for us, Bigthana and Teresh, were hanged on a tree. Mordecai was simply faithful to do what was right. There is a lot to be said for simple faithfulness. In fact, the Scriptures have a lot to say about faithfulness. I'll share one verse. We'll share more in a moment. But here's what I want you to hear about faithfulness right now. 
1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. You could probably all quote it by heart. Moreover, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. You see, we're all stewards. We've all been given some things from God. We're all stewards of what God has given us. We're stewards in our families, with our finances, our roles, responsibilities, our ministries in and to the local church, our jobs, in everything over which God has made us all stewards. The simple requirement is faithfulness. The requirement is not to be brilliant or to be an overachiever. The requirement is not talent. The requirement is not about ability. The requirement is not to be exceptional. The requirement is faithfulness. If you can't do anything else, and if you can't be anything else, you can always be faithful. Mordecai was faithful. And we're going to see very quickly that in due time, his faithfulness paid off. So we see that he was rewarded for a faithful deed. He just was faithful to do what he was supposed to do, to do what was right. But it turned out to be a fruitful deed as well. A fruitful deed. We'll see it in detail in a moment, but for now let's just say that in due time, again, years have gone by, in due time, Mordecai was rewarded for his act of faithfulness. Just simply doing what he should have done, simple faithfulness, paid off for him in a very big way. Mordecai received a high honor for just doing what was right. But he didn't get it the next day. As I said, it appears that the deed went unnoticed and unrewarded until this night years later. But in due season, God rewarded him for his faithfulness. I'm going to issue a challenge. I'm going to say, I'm going to use the words we used as kids. I, I dare you. I dare you to be faithful. I guarantee you that in due time, your faithfulness will bear fruit. God does honor, He does reward faithfulness. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. In Matthew 24, 46, Jesus said, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find him so doing. 
Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over his goods. In Matthew 25, Jesus doesn't say, Well done, thou good and intelligent and thrifty and talented business mind. No, he doesn't say that. On that day, those who are faithful, who serve him faithfully, to them he will say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord if you will be faithful. God will make you fruitful. Insomnia to me is miserable for the most part. But the king's insomnia here turned out to be a good thing for Mordecai because he found that he had been unrewarded for something he had done years earlier. And it turned out to be a good thing for Esther and all the Jews in the empire. It's a good, insomnia is a good thing when it results in a reward, but we also see it can be a good thing when it results in what I'm calling a reversal. Uh, I'm calling this a reversal. Insomnia can be a good thing when it results in a reversal. Excuse me. If you can read verses 3 through 12 of Esther 6 and not at least some point get half of a grin, I don't know if there's any help for you. If you don't think that God has a sense of humor, you're just not paying attention as you read some of these records we find in the Scripture through the, the human of affliction of insomnia in a moment of time, the tables are turned on Haman. When the record of Mordecai's faithful but forgotten deed was read to Xerxes, he asked, what reward has been done to Mordecai? How have we rewarded him? How have we recognized him? What's been done for him for doing this? And his servants answered, nothing has been done for him. And the king says, well, who's in the court? Who's on duty right now? And lo and behold, as the king is asking who's in the court, Haman comes sliding in like Cosmo Kramer. Seinfeld. And he's going to ask the king about hanging Mordecai on the 75-foot gallows he had built. And before he can even ask the king about the next stretching he had planned for Haman, the king says, reckon what we ought to do. The king was from the south, South Persia apparently. Reckon what we ought to do for the man whom the king delights to honor. And again, if Haman would have been wearing suspenders, he stuck his thumbs in them. Well, who in the world would the king want to honor more than me? And he says, I'll tell you what you ought to do, king. And to me, this one's just weird. It's weird, man. Let them wear your clothes. 
What dude wants to wear another dude's clothes? How is that an honor? Let him ride your horse. Let him wear your crown. Let him be led through the streets to the proclamation. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Wait for it. Ahasuerus, Xerxes, says, man, that's a great idea. Hurry up and go do everything you just said to Mordecai. <laughs> Every bit of it. Verse 11, Then took Haman the apparel and the horse <laughs> and arrayed Mordecai. It sounds like he had to put the clothes on him. Just weird, but funny still. And he brings him on horseback through the street of the city. And he himself has to give that proclamation. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And he took Mordecai back to the king's gate. Haman went to his house mourning. The same word that's used in the Old Testament a lot of times to describe the emotional reaction to the death of a close loved one. Poor old Haman. He's just mourning, crying his eyes out. Got his head covered. Nothing went like Haman thought it was going to go. There is a complete reversal that happens. A complete reversal of what he is planning. And we'll see the full extent of that in the chapters to come. But he didn't get to do anything to Mordecai that he wanted to do to Mordecai. But he had to do everything for Mordecai that he wanted done for himself. And God gave the king insomnia in order to pull the old switcheroo on Haman. <laughs> There's a couple of principles found at work here in this chapter that we also hear over in the book of James, chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. And that first principle is that God resists the proud. God resists the proud. James 4, 6. God resists the proud. Haman sure did have a high opinion of himself, did he not? I think it was last week I said nobody liked him better than he did. And he's displaying the very characteristic that God hates and that God opposes the most. Those who are lifted up in their pride have an enemy in the God of the universe. The word resist that James uses doesn't simply mean opposition, but it means it carries the idea of being hostile towards someone. God is hostile towards the proud. 
Proverbs 16, 18 tells us that pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. It's easy for us to stand on this side of the narrative and point our fingers at Haman. Talk about how prideful he was. How much he liked himself. We'd probably call him a narcissist now. Easy for us to look at him, but I'm telling you, Haman still exists. Mm. And it might surprise you where he exists. <laughs> if Haman was a member of a local church today, you might hear him say something like, I should have got that so low. I should get to teach that class. I should get to chair that committee. They, they should have made me a deacon instead of him. Why, I'm more qualified than they are. When we adopt Haman's arrogance and high opinion of ourselves, the Bible says that God resists that kind of thing. He'll resist us in our endeavors. It reminds me of something I heard my old friend, Brother Tom Hayes, say. Um, uh, he, he, I say old friend. He, he is quite a bit older than me, but we've been friends for a while. So in case Brother Tom listens, I, I'll... I did insult you, and I'm not sorry. Uh, one time he said, you know, I can handle it if you're mad at me. I can work through it if you're resisting me. But I don't want God against me. And the Bible is clear that when pride is an issue in our lives, that God resists that he is hostile towards those areas of pride in our lives and can even resist and will and does resist us when we are operating out of a prideful spirit. There's a principle that God resists the proud, and the other side of that principle is that God raises the humble. Mordecai knows that Haman is behind the plot to kill the Jews. Mordecai knows that Haman hates the very sight of him. Mordecai does not know, I'm assuming, that Haman has built the gallows solely for Mordecai's use. The king didn't know about Haman's plot to hang Mordecai. But God had His eye on every little detail of it. And God knew Mordecai. And He knew the danger 
that his people were in. And he knew the prideful heart of wicked Haman. And he knew everything there was to know about everything. And God was burning the midnight oil because the one who keeps Israel will never slumber or never sleep. He never gets tired. He never even has to take a power nap. He never goes on vacation. He is always watching out for and always working on behalf of his people. And while Ahasuerus couldn't sleep, God is turning the tables on Haman. And while he was resisting Haman, at the same time, he was raising up Mordecai. In its entirety, James 4, 6 reads that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. James chapter 4, verse 10, we read, Humble yourself. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you. In due time, he will lift you up. First Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore. I got two verses completely messed up. Let me go back to James 4, 10. Rarely happens that I mess up, but I did this morning. James 4, 10, humble yourself in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. First Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, in God's time. It had been years since Mordecai's faithful deed. Mordecai wasn't sitting around, all mule-lipped, talking about... Nobody ever appreciated what I did for the king. No, he just stayed faithful. And in God's time, he was exalted. He was lifted up. In God's time, he did a complete reversal. While Haman was seeking to honor himself and humble Mordecai, God used the insomnia of the king to turn the tables to humble Haman and honor Mordecai. In God's economy, the way up is down. If you want to be honored, you must first humble yourself. While we amen that truth, we often forget this one little phrase, in due time. We want instant reward. We're an impatient lot, are we not? Microwave ovens, so you can eat in just a few seconds. Double lines at the Chick-fil-A so you can get through faster, supposedly. I think that worked out like they thought it would, but I digress. We want the payoff right now. But it comes in God's time. God's way isn't the fast track. 
It isn't the easiest way and it isn't the fastest way. And if you do things God's way, if you humble yourself before Him, you have to endure. And you'll endure injury and insult and the enemy's schemes and you'll have to see people get promoted ahead of you sometimes. Sometimes you won't understand why things happen. Even though you may be more qualified to do a better job, you humble yourself before God and you do things His way sometimes. A lot of the times, it's the long way around. However, in due time, in due time, in God's time, at some time, at just the right time, He resists the proud and He raises up the humble. You just have to be patient and faithful. The back of all of this, even before the king's insomnia, back in chapters 4 and 5, Mordecai, if you'll remember, and I believe this is a key detail, Mordecai had been fasting and praying. At the end of chapter 5, it's written that when Haman walked by Mordecai at the king's gate, Mordecai did not stand for Haman. You remember they, they, they had passed a law? That when Haman walked by, everybody was supposed to stand up and acknowledge him. Everybody did that but Mordecai. As Esther is about to go in and approach the king about doing something about Haman's plot to kill all of the Jews, she had asked them to pray. At the end of chapter 5, when Haman walked by Mordecai at the king's gate, Mordecai did not stand. That tells me something. It tells me he was either sitting, maybe kneeling at the gate, praying as Esther is going in before the king. Mordecai was not concocting a counter plan to Haman's plan. No. He was humbling himself before God and praying. While Mordecai was humbling himself before God, God was preparing to honor him and he was making it so that Haman would be the very human agent that honored Mordecai. He, he. What if I told you you don't have to fight? You don't have to push people out of the way to try to get ahead. You don't have to scratch and claw trying to climb the ladder. 
you don't have to launch a counter offensive for every time you're offended. According to the scripture, that if we'll just humble ourselves before God, He'll provide all of the reversals. And He might use something as common as somebody else's insomnia to do so. And I'm going to add this to it. He's a lot better at that than you and I could ever be. Insomnia can be a good thing when it results in a reward, in a reversal. It can be a good thing when it results in a revelation, in a revelation. Something interesting happens when Mordecai goes home. It's interesting to me. After having to lead, uh, excuse me, when Haman goes home, after having to lead Mordecai through the streets on the king's horse, Haman puts his hoodie up, as it were. <laughs> he covers his head and goes back to his house and he starts talking to his wife and his friends again. Remember the last time he, he did that, he boasts about how much stuff he owed, how much money he had, all the children he had sired, and how the king had invited him uh, or how he had been invited to a banquet and he and the king were the only attendees besides Esther. Instead of talking about his wealth this time, all he could talk about was his woes, were his woes. I can hear him now. And, 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 and then the king, he, he made me leave Haman around on his horse, and I had to say, thus shall it be done to the man from the king's honor. And I was supposed to be on that horse. I was a little too good at that, wasn't I? <laughs> Gave you a little insight there, didn't I? Maybe it's happened in real life a couple of times. Verse 13, Zeresh, Mrs. Haman, begins to speak. And her reply to Haman tells us that she, she's had a little light of revelation. There are some things that she knows. One of them, that she knows about the promises of God. She knew something about the promises of God. Listen to what she says in verse 13. If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall... Thou shalt not prevail against him, but thou shalt surely fall before him. Notice how her tune has changed. At the end of chapter 5, she's the main mouthpiece telling Haman to build the tall gallows with the short rope upon which to hang Mordecai. Now she's telling him that that was a bad idea. And he probably would not survive the ordeal. She was just all kinds of help, wasn't she? Some way, somehow. Zeresh, Mrs. Haman, knew something about God's covenant with Israel. 
She knew something about God's faithfulness to His people. She knew that God would save His people, that He would rescue His people, that He would deliver His people. Apparently, she had heard about how God had delivered His people in the past. Apparently, she observed and saw how God had preserved His people throughout their captivity. We are to the world what the Jews were to the Persian Empire. Mrs. Haman specifically. When people see us, they may not understand us. Many will not like us as Christ followers. And some will even mean to do us harm. However, our lives should be, we should live in such a way that as the world observes us, they are confronted with the God of heaven who saves His people. Apparently, Mrs. Haman knew something about the promises of God, and she knew something about the power of God. I'm homing in on her final phrase to Haman. Thou shalt not prevail against him, but fall before him. Mrs. Haman knew that if God was for His people, no one could stand against them. Oh, we're in an uproar these days about how things are going and how Christians seem to be maligned and mistreated and target of scorn of the world in these days. But if I'm reading chapters like Esther 6, right? We can say, let the Hamans of this world plan our fall. <laughs> let them push their agendas. For God is able to use human weakness. Yes, even our own personal weaknesses. Even things as common and annoying and unpleasant as insomnia. To protect us, to provide for us, to preserve us, and to fulfill His plans. He can use someone else's insomnia to push one down, that he may lift another up. He can let the enemy work his plan, even down to the last detail. And just as he is about to execute his plan, God can instantly turn things around and use what is meant for us for evil, for our good. And God has a history of doing so. I read it over there in the book of Genesis when Joseph's brothers were hating on him 
because he was daddy's favorite. And he may have been a little mouthy coming out talking about his dream where they all had to bow before him. Maybe he should have kept that one to himself. But they hated him and they sold him slavery. And he ended up Potiphar's servant. And eventually Potiphar's prisoner on trumped up charges. But at the end of it all, when he's risen to power and he's the prime minister of Egypt and they're having to come to Egypt to get corn because of the worldwide famine, and they finally discover that the prime minister of Egypt was not just some Egyptian, but their own brother whom they had sold off into slavery. Joseph was able to say to them, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. I read it over there in the book of 2 Kings, I believe it is, where Balaam has been hired to curse the people of Israel. And every time he tries to curse them, God puts him in a trance, in a trance. And all he can do is pronounce blessings upon them. As a matter of fact, he tried it so many times and was so hard-headed trying to earn his money, which a preacher that is paid off and can be bought up, deserves whatever happens to him anyway. He kept on till even his donkey said, Man, what is up with you? Every time he tried to curse God's people, all he could do was bless them. I've seen it over there in the Gospels where one of Jesus' own followers had conspired with the temple officials for his downfall. For the price of a servant, 30 pieces of silver, Judas betrayed Jesus even while they're observing Passover. They go out to the garden where Jesus prays, and when He gets through praying, Judas, the New Testament Haman, shows up with the temple officials and the Roman soldiers. And He says, this is Him, I'll show you the one that I greet with the kiss. And He betrays our Lord who is then arrested and He is tried and He is mocked and He is beaten and He is nailed to a cross where He dismisses His spirit and dies. And I can't help but think that maybe the devil wasn't doing a victory lap because he thought he had won. But God works in mysterious ways. And God can let the enemy work his plan down to the last detail because it turns out that what the devil thought was his own plan, turns out it was... God's plan all along acts to the foreknowledge and determinate 
counsel of God. And at the right instant, at the right moment, Jesus came to this earth in the fullness of time. And in the fullness of time, he rose from the grave. Oh, I just came by to tell you this morning that God can use common means, ordinary means, to work out His extraordinary plans and purposes in your life. God can use something as annoying and as simple as a sleepless night. God can use everyday affliction. God can use the worst betrayal that you've ever experienced. God can work through those things that we wouldn't choose for ourselves. And God knows how to reward His people. And God knows how to turn things around on the devil and the enemies of God's people. God knows how to shine the light of revelation in our lives through His Word so we can understand His workings in our lives. No, it isn't always pleasant. It isn't always a joy ride. It isn't always a walk on the mountaintop. Sometimes it is in through the deep valleys of suffering and affliction. But you can trust God. You can look for Him in even the mundane things of life because in the end, God works His plan and God's purposes will be fulfilled in this world and in eternity and even in your life and in my life. And sometimes He just chooses to give us glimpses of glory through very ordinary things, maybe even like a sleepless night. Take heart, child of God. He knows every detail. He's got His eye on every bit of it. And in due time, He'll work on your behalf. And in due time, He'll reward you for your faithfulness. And in due time, He can turn things right around in your life. And in due time, He'll give you the right word of revelation from His Word. He'll remind you of His promises and His power. Amen. Stand with me, please.